Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on our latest online selections of important peer-reviewed research and reviews for Part 2 of our November-December 2019 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Although research has identified long-term risk factors for suicide, predicting the immediate risk of suicide remains difficult. Therefore, there is a need for reliable biomarkers of suicide risk. Researchers in Belgium recently conducted a study to investigate if an electroencephalogram, or EEG, would show unique characteristics in people with high suicide risk compared to non-suicidal individuals. The study compared resting state EEG frequency power of three groups, depressive patients with a recent suicide attempt, depressive patients who suffer from suicidal ideation but have not made a suicide attempt, and depressive patients with no suicidal ideation or behavior. Both suicide groups had reduced beta brand power in the frontal regions compared to depressed controls. In addition, suicide attempters displayed reduced beta brand power in the right temporal region when compared to the ideators. These differences were localized within prefrontal and temporal brain regions that are consistent with findings from the functional and structural MRI literature. These results suggest that EEG resting state measurements could help identify individuals at risk for suicide. Prescription opioid misuse is a public health crisis in the United States, and recent research suggests that prescription opioid misuse prevalence has increased in adults age 50 and older. There is little research, however, on the mental and physical health profiles of older adults based on their history of prescription opioid misuse. To explore this subject, the authors conducted the present study, a CME offering for this issue, funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, the National Cancer Institute, and the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Using design-based regression analyses, they utilized data from the 2012-2013 National Epidemiologic Survey of Alcohol and Related Conditions to evaluate health-related quality of life, mental and physical health, and substance use profiles of older adults with current or past prescription opioid misuse. The primary finding was that older adults with persistent prescription opioid misuse suffered the greatest impairment with poor health-related quality of life, higher levels of current and lifetime psychopathology, physical health conditions, and problematic substance use. In contrast, older adults with no history of prescription opioid misuse had the best current health profiles. Older adults with past-year initiation of opioid misuse had elevated rates of physical health diagnoses, while those with prior-to-past-year opioid misuse had high rates of current psychopathology. In particular, the authors found that older adults with persistent prescription opioid misuse need multidisciplinary care that will likely include psychiatrists, addiction medicine, pain specialists, and 
care for their physical health conditions. The authors conclude that psychiatrists are well-placed to identify older adults with ongoing prescription opioid misuse given their high rates of current psychopathology. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the November-December table of contents at psychiatrist.com. In this study conducted at the University of Calgary, Researchers investigated the utility of brain imaging in first-episode psychosis. Psychosis can be broadly classified into two groups, primary psychosis without an identifiable cause or secondary psychosis indicating some underlying pathology. Secondary causes include abnormalities in structure or metabolism in the brain. Currently, there are no consensus guidelines addressing the usefulness of brain imaging in first-episode psychosis. The authors of the present study analyzed 443 subjects aged 15 to 24 years presenting to the Early Psychosis Intervention Program in Calgary, Alberta, who underwent brain imaging. All eligible subjects received either a computed tomography scan a magnetic resonance imaging scan, or both. A positive brain imaging result was defined as one that required urgent follow-up or intervention. The authors found incidental findings unrelated to psychosis in about 6% of subjects and positive findings in none of the subjects, leading them to conclude that neuroimaging does not provide sufficient diagnostic or clinical utility to justify its routine use in first-episode psychosis. Older subjects presenting with first-episode psychosis or those who have an abnormal neurologic exam may be more suitable candidates for neuroimaging. SSRIs are often used as first-line treatment, yet rates of treatment resistance in randomized controlled trials in patients with late-life depression are as high as 77% when using SSRIs. In this CME offering, with funding from the National Institute of Mental Health, researchers recently undertook an analysis to help optimize the selection of the next step in treating late-life depression. The authors determined the likelihood of antidepressant response in older adults with major depression as a function of their prior antidepressant trials. They found that higher remission rates were correlated with a lower number of prior adequate medication trials. Further, the analysis showed that if prior treatment trials included a serotonin nor epinephrine reuptake inhibitor, participants were less likely to achieve remission with venlafaxine. Those with prior adequate trials were also more likely to require a higher dose of venlafaxine to achieve remission. The authors conclude that in older adults with major depression, information on a patient's number and class of prior adequate antidepressant trials can be used to predict the likelihood of a successful treatment outcome with a given antidepressant. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the November-December table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Risperidone is one of the most commonly prescribed antipsychotics worldwide. Its main metabolite, 9-hydroxyrisperidone, is excreted renally, but there is a lack of data about the influence of kidney function on the serum concentrations of the drug. 
In this study, the authors examined the relationship of kidney function and risperidone serum concentrations in a large sample of risperidone-treated patients. Researchers determined the serum concentrations of risperidone and its active metabolite, 9-hydroxyrisperidone, and the estimated glomerular filtration rates, or GFRs, in 175 patients treated with risperidone. Patients were clustered in four groups according to their GFR. Results show that at a given dose, both the serum concentration of 9-hydroxyrisperidone and active moiety concentrations, that is the sum of risperidone and 9-hydroxyrisperidone concentrations, were significantly higher in patients with a GFR below 60 milliliters per minute. In the group of patients with the lowest GFR, the active moiety concentrations for a given dose were twice as high as in patients with normal kidney function. Kidney function is an important determinant of risperidone's clearance. These data suggest reducing the risperidone dose by 50% in patients with a GFR below 60 milliliters per minute. The authors conclude that in every patient treated with risperidone, serum concentrations and the GFR should be measured at least once. In patients with impaired kidney function, the doses should be adjusted accordingly. There are many suicide assessment scales available, but their predictive properties have rarely been compared. In this study from Sweden, the authors evaluated four suicide risk scales in a clinical self-harm cohort. Patients who were assessed at psychiatric emergency services after a suicide attempt or non-suicidal self-injury were interviewed with the Suicide Intent Scale, the Suicide Assessment Scale, the Karolinska Interpersonal Violence Scale, and the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale. The authors then followed patients for one year using medical records and the National Cause of Death Register to gather information about new episodes of self-injuries and suicides. In total, 804 patients with a median age of 33 years were included in the study. During the one-year follow-up, 27% of the participants made a suicide attempt and 2.4% died by suicide a sensitivity of at least 80% and a specificity of at least 50% were considered minimally acceptable in predicting these outcomes. None of the instruments, however, met these criteria. One reason for their poor performance could be that many high-risk individuals had already been identified in the clinical assessment and subjected to preventive measures. If the same individuals were identified by the instruments, the predicted episodes had already been prevented, resulting in a seemingly poor performance of the instruments. The authors conclude that the results do not justify routine use of the examined scales for risk assessment after an episode of self-harm. They recommend these scales be used only as a complement to clinical assessment. Alzheimer's disease is a progressive, ultimately fatal condition in which neurodegenerative processes cause a vicious cycle of dysfunction and damage that leads to ongoing behavioral and functional changes. In this CME Academic Highlights section, supported by Acadia, Allergan, Avenar, and Biogen, 
Learn from experts in neurology, psychiatry, neuropsychology, and primary care about working with patients and their care partners to create management plans for Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Atrie and colleagues discuss best practices for addressing the symptoms and impairments experienced by patients with Alzheimer's, as well as the importance of working with and assessing the needs of their care partners. To read this academic highlights and take this CMA post-test, please visit the November-December table of contents at psychiatrist.com. How does tardive dyskinesia, or TD, affect patients' work and relationships? Does the development of TD impact patients differently if they have an affective disorder versus schizophrenia? Should TD be treated even if patients lack insight into its presence? In this online CME brief report supported by Neurocrine, Dr. Joseph McAvoy considers these questions and more to address the early recognition and treatment of tardive dyskinesia in patients with mood disorders and schizophrenia. To explore this brief report and take the CME post-test, please visit the November-December table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Clobazam is widely used for seizure disorders and anxiety, but its safety in pregnant women has been little discussed in the literature. In a new installment of his clinical and practical psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade reviews the evidence regarding clobazam and the risk of congenital malformations. Another installment of his column discusses a recent meta-analysis that found substantial benefits of memantine in treating obsessive-compulsive disorder. Dr. Andrade takes a closer look at the methods the authors used and the studies they included to weigh the merits of their conclusions. The full text of these columns is freely available online. Please visit the November-December table of contents at psychiatrist.com. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the newest online offerings from Part 2 of the November-December 2019 issue on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.